At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I had the joy of sitting down with someone who many of you will recognize from the Food 52 multiverse, Emma LaPeruque, who is the mind behind Big Little Recipes, Food 52's award-winning column, newsletter, and video series. Emma has now turned Big Little Recipes into a cookbook that will be out November 9th which is very soon, but you can pre-order it right now. As I have always said around the water cooler at Food 52, every big little recipe is a genius recipe because they're all about thoughtful tricks for turning tiny grocery lists into big flavor meals. One favorite of mine was when Emma made the dressing for her BLT salad out of just cherry tomatoes blitzed with mayonnaise. And every big little recipe has at least one simple, why didn't I think of that sort of takeaway? And in this episode, Emma and I talk about a bunch of recipes like that. So without further ado, here's Emma to tell you more about what exactly defines a big little recipe for her and how you can make more with less in your own kitchen. How would you define a big little recipe to yourself at this point? Good food, five ingredients or fewer, not counting water, salt, pepper, cooking fats like butter or oil. And then beyond that, anything goes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I didn't realize that everything was five ingredients or fewer now, including everything in the book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There have definitely been times over the past three plus years that I've kind of kicked myself with the five. But since we've stuck with that, it's it, anything <laughs> above it now feels like, oh, I'm, I'm not like going all the way. So, uh -huh. you know, it's. Maybe sometimes it makes things harder than they need to be. But when you get it in that template and it's something really good, it's something like really uh, full tasting, it feels like such an accomplishment. And that's, I think, the way I try to picture the readers um, eating it as well. I think that sense of accomplishment also like translates really seamlessly. Like people, I think, often come into it with a... Um, a really understandable amount of skepticism. Like, is this actually going to taste good? Don't I need to add garlic or Parmesan or whatever else you might think would make it better? But then you take a bite and you're like, oh, I get it. I didn't actually need all these things that maybe our brains have been telling us we need to do. It really keeps you honest in a way. 
if you rely on the same seasonings to carry something through or the same set of seasonings to carry something through. And then when you really limit yourself, both you as a developer and then people who are following along with the recipes and following along with the column and the videos and everything, developing that trust that like, no, you don't have to put a ton of Parmesan on top at the end or chili flakes or whatever it is that you tend to turn to, to give something a boost at the end. Yeah, totally. And we've been working on um, like more and more kids content on the site. Um, And I, with food for new eaters, it's like, it's so much about introducing flavors and ingredients and exposure and okay try this and try it again and try it again and maybe now you'll like it and I think with adults this column sometimes feels like the opposite Hmm. take that away take that away and now try it and try to have an open mind but any recipe that goes through the column on the site or in the book I really believe wholeheartedly it's like no it doesn't need a single other thing to taste great how has that changed the way that you cook over the course of the years that you've been doing Big Little Recipes? I think a lot. I mean, when I started it, I I was so excited by the concept because it was something that we hadn't done before in quite this way on the site. Um, and I felt like it was a real challenge. I love a challenge. When I really got into it, I think I felt pretty unnerved by the <laughs> longevity of it. I was like, how is this going to am I really going to have ideas in a year or two years? Um, because if every concept felt um, tricky to feel compelling, but the more I stayed with the column, the more time I spent in that mindset, the more I became convinced of it myself. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think just like anyone else coming to the column, like I make all sorts of recipes and a lot of them have a ton of ingredients and I, feel that temptation all the time so I think I kind of had to break down my own skepticism of a few ingredient cooking along the way and now you know I just all I see are possibilities I don't feel nervous anymore if we're just like riffing on a weeknight it does kind of give you that I think working in the column I feel like has given me permission to do less and feel like I don't have to say sorry that you can make a sauce with just a couple things and it can be really good and it's a perfect dinner and it doesn't need to be fussed over any more than that like what would be an example of that buttered carbs I think is the thing that I'm always like eating in somewhere or another like buttered bread buttered rice buttered noodles and then you throw in like like uh like an audacious amount of X or Y or Z. I've had, I've been belonged to like a CSA since the pandemic started. And I think like all CSAs, you get a lot of one thing like week after week, like, okay, we're going to be getting potatoes every week for now, like several weeks, or you have so much kale or you have so much squash all at one time. Like with the column, I really like leaning into uh, excess and quantity, like what if you, mm-hmm. okay, so we're using garlic, but what if you use so much garlic? Okay, we're using kale, but what if you do, like, a bunch, like, one bunch of kale per person? Like, what if you really, like, lean on those ingredients instead of trying to mm-hmm. make them feel bigger with other ingredients? What if you just kind of 
made them feel bigger, period. Like, my husband and I just eat. Like, when we eat a vegetable, we're, like, like a whole head of romaine for each of us. Or, like, half a spaghetti squash. And that's just, like, it feels exciting because you're just, like, going all in on it. So how do you make a whole bunch of kale per person a big little recipe? Mm-hmm. Um... I mean, the first one that's coming to mind is something that we riffed on in on the site and then that got carried over into the book, which is um, kale sauce. And it's mostly kale. Like it's mm-hmm. kale pureed with a little olive oil, a little cheese, a little garlic. And from a distance, that doesn't seem very appetizing, but it's so um, satisfying, like crazy satisfying. That kind of thing I find mm-hmm. very exciting. So like maybe it's like a puree or you just saute a ton of it or you turn it into like a ridiculously large salad and then that salad, you know, becomes dinner with enough bread. Oh, in the, the book we have a pasta that is inspired by kasha varnishkas and which is a recipe that my grandma really loves call it kosh barn she doesn't call it that that's just me um she loves that recipe her second husband loved that recipe it's like very old school jewish comfort food so i was trying to do a a spin on it like a modern spin and in that spin a lot of kale came in because i love kale it's very sturdy it's always in my fridge Um, and you just you chop it really finely and the pasta cooks it basically along the development i think we actually yeah, there was one point where the kale got cooked in the pasta water. Mm-hmm. And in cross-testing, then it was like, wait, why why is it getting cooked in the pasta water? Is this actually helping? Or if we just threw it in the bowl and threw the hot pasta on top, would that be uh, like easier but also better? It stays a little bit peppier. And that worked better. So that's what we went with. And my grandma, actually, she was one of the people who cross-tested that. And she hates kale. I forgot. <laughs> My grandma's 91 years old and nothing's changing at this point. It is what it is. So I'm not, I don't, I might convince some people to like kale, I hope, but it's not going to be her. It's amazing that she volunteered to test a recipe. Yeah, she was so excited and I was very lucky to have her help. You mentioned a little bit ago uh, techniques that you use as being so strong that they can carry the recipes, even if you only have a few ingredients. Yeah, there, there are a few of them. And I sort of, you know, these aren't things that I came up with, but as I developed more and more big little recipes, I found there were things that I kept coming back to because they provided so much, like, you know, bang for your buck, added so much value. Like, I think going excess in quantity is definitely one. Like, you already bought this ingredient, Uh, Like, let's get the most out of it. Like, one sprig of dill. Like, I'm not going to mess with that. Like, let's, like, get a whole bunch and, like, let's really use some dill. Another one is using a recipe or an ingredient more than one way. Mm, If you had, let's just say garlic. You can mince some garlic, right? And then that, maybe that's fresh. And then maybe you roast some more garlic and the flavor is like, it just could not be more different. It might as well not be called the same ingredient. Like there was a 
crispy garlic dip on the site where you like sizzle some garlic, stir them to yogurt, and then I think they're like more garlic chips on top. Mm -hmm. So there's like different textures, different flavors. All of that's coming from the same ingredient. You can kind of like look at it from different angles. Another technique is ingredients that already come with different personalities. You don't have to like do any technique. You just kind of have to like appreciate their full uh, like breath, like pickles. You use the pickles, obviously, but then there's this whole jar of pickle brine. Like that's basically just like an insanely delicious vinegar. Why not use that? Why not apply that toward the same dish? Like radishes, beets, things that come with these greens, basically just like a green, like you would buy like kale or spinach, even though maybe you were buying it for the radish, but like you're getting this whole bonus ingredient. Sometimes it can, I feel like, hop into the dish really effortlessly. Like we have some skillet chicken thighs in the book that are sauteed with radishes and their greens. And in that dish, it's perfect. Cause like you don't, um, but between the chicken, the radishes themselves, they're like really sweet when they're sauteed and the greens, which kind of like rounds out the whole thing. Like that's a perfect dinner. But still, you're not leaving us hanging with just like remove and discard or remove and save for another use. But I'm not going to tell you what that use no, is. No, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this chat with Emma as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on other stories like this one. And like our recent story with sixth-generation farmer and author of the cookbook Fresenium, Matthew Rayford, about how recipes like molasses pound cake, grilled watermelon, and oysters on a hot tin represent his farm's past, present, and future. In the second half of this episode, we get a sneak peek at the newness coming in Big Little Recipes, the book. Meet you back here for that. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. So in translating this column and newsletter and video series that you do for a book, how were you thinking about things differently? I feel like most of my brainstorming happened in Penn Station, like late at night when I missed my train by two minutes and I was sitting there for an hour and I would just write down all these like gibberish ideas and then the next day when I wasn't in Penn Station and I was at like a real computer, I would try to put them into something cohesive. The column was like the starting point. 
because we knew that we wanted to take some portion of recipes from the column and turn them into the book. My biggest concern there was how do we make those recipes feel fresh and special. And most people will never know that I was in my kitchen trying it like four different ways and like that's totally chill. But that then I just felt like, okay, yeah, this really is like, this is the way it should be in the book. It's sort of like a, like a puzzle piece. Like, well, what's, what could we use more of that we don't have enough of? What are we missing? So what are some examples of, I would love to hear both the recipes, or actually, I guess there's sort of three categories. There's the totally new recipes to the book that you're really excited about. The ones that you took from the site and made something new. And then the ones that you tried tweaking and then just ultimately decided they just really had to stay pretty much as they are on the site. I'd love to hear some examples from all of those. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's runs that didn't really change that much. Like the, we have a pork tenderloin that is braised with kimchi and apples and then you serve it over whatever you want if you want to serve it over something like polenta or rice or noodles it's like very uh saucy and cozy and tangy because of the kimchi not recipe the kimchi the kimchi brine brines the pork and then the kimchi itself mm-hmm. gets sauteed with the meat and the apples add the sweetness it's really nice for the book I remember specifically because we know our audience loves pork tenderloin. I just like haven't messed with pork tenderloin that much. I don't think it was a cut that my mom used. Like, I mean, my my family is Jewish. Most of us aren't kosher, but we just didn't have a lot of pork beyond bacon in our house growing up. Mm-hmm. So I just like wasn't that familiar with pork tenderloin. I had no attachment to it, but we were like, we know that a lot of people look for this on the site. For the book, I was like, okay, I'm going to do a pork chop. I was really excited about pork chops. I tried it with pork chops and it just didn't work. I remember like I I kept trying to like make it work better with the pork chop because in my head I was like, oh, this is a better dish. The pork chop is going to be like more fun or, you know, it'll be prettier. Like you have that gorgeous cut in the bone and it just wasn't. The pork tenderloin just ended up being better and that was fine. And that's nice to know in its own way. Other things that change or we're saying didn't change, right? Well, okay. So a couple ones that sort of changed. I think that's probably like the biggest middle ground category. Like the, we have this on the site, I think it's called Busy Weeknight Bean Chili. That was like a community favorite, really like easy, like kind of pantry style chili that you could just, you don't have to spend all day with it. It's not like a long affair. Knew that I wanted to get that in the book. The ingredient list, I think the quantities are identical. One of the big things that shifted with that was the the way that you chop the yellow onion and the poblanos, which sounds small to the point of being stupid, but it actually made a huge difference. Like on the site you just kind of you just chop them all uniform in the book you have like your one yellow onion right you cut it in half one half gets finely chopped the other half gets roughly chopped you have your two poblanos one gets finely chopped one gets roughly chopped 
you still throw them all into the pan at the same time, but because they're starting out with these different sizes, they cook unevenly. And usually in like old school uh, culinary training, probably contemporary culinary training too, they'll say cut things evenly. So they cook evenly, like evenly is always the good scenario, right? But sometimes uneven is really nice. And in the chili, it's really nice because you're starting out with so few ingredients. You have your beans, you have these vegetables, you have like a tomato-y spicy sauce all around it, but that's it. So when you have a bite of poblano that's really, it's bigger, right? And it has a little bit more crunch and like toothsomeness. And then you have a smaller piece that's more like melty and tender. It gives this illusion in your mouth that you're eating different things, even though it's not, it's like the same pepper. It cooked for the same amount of time, but it has this nuance now that it might not have beforehand. The original recipe is, so it's very similar from the site, but that tiny little swap, it adds a little bit more oomph to it and makes you feel like a little bit more, uh, I keep thinking like sneaky when you serve it, like, yeah, yeah like <laughs> we did something and you might not be able to put your finger on it when you're eating it, but it makes you feel more excited about the dish. Oh, how great is that feeling when you serve something to someone and they're like, wow, what did you put in this? And then you only have to list a few things. The funny thing is, is that I, mostly when I'm serving people big little recipes, it's a test. So I'm like the worst host or partner in the world. And I'm like, every time you take a bite, I'm like, but what about the spice? Like, what about the salt? What <laughs> is it saucy enough? Is it too thick? Like just the worst person to eat with. And then when I'm cooking for people for fun, and maybe it's not my own recipe, sometimes people are like, oh, this cake is amazing. Is this a big little recipe? And I'm like, no, this has like 17 ingredients in it. I think sometimes people <laughs> think most of the things I cook are big little recipes. And then I'm like, no, this is just a big, big recipe. But when you sneak it in, it, it's very satisfying. I can just imagine for myself and for all the people who are going to be cooking recipes from this book, I can picture the satisfaction of putting a really complex tasting and exciting and varied chili on the table and then people saying like oh what like what did you you know what was in your spice blend or what 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 did you put in to make this so good and the satisfaction of knowing that it was the same minimal ingredient list you did one different thing than you maybe normally would do and it wasn't even more work in fact maybe it was less work because you're chopping some of it in just bigger chunkier pieces and you get a completely different result. Mm. I, I, I would be very, very, very satisfied to be like, mm, just onions and poblanos. No big deal. Just onions and poblanos. I mean, <laughs> just, just onions. I feel like could be uh, like, maybe that'll be the second book. Just onions. <laughs> I feel like when you, you use enough onions, everything just tastes better. Yeah, and the fact that you just still throw them in at the same time and they're doing the work for you, becoming two totally different things that blend together and are friendly but like offer you more. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, that's exactly it. I feel like that's the whole spirit is like our ingredients are very smart and they're very, uh, <laughs> you know, like don't put baby in a corner. Like don't put your onion in a corner, right? Like it's like, I mean, I, onions, now I'm just going to be on an onion note. You eat a raw onion or a sauteed onion or a caramelized onion or like a f- f- deep fried onion. It's has so many personalities just like I mean they're like people they they want to be all these different things at the same time I think when you let them do that cooking gets a lot more exciting um just to take us back to our our like tour of the different styles of recipes in the book what are some of the ones that you're most excited about that were completely new to the book Mm, completely new the, I mean, the cover recipe I was very excited about. And then I, I think just feel an attachment to because it's the one that's staring at you. Mm-hmm. But that one, it looks from afar. It's like, okay, that's uh, spaghetti with eggs and bacon because you see the spaghetti, you see the eggs, you see the bacon. But the sauce that's coating the spaghetti is also eggs and bacon, but they're just in a different form, right? Like the egg yolks and hot bacon fat and pasta water emulsify into this silky, rich carbonara-like sauce without the cheese. It's essentially carbonara, but you take away the parm, which when I thought of that, I was like, oh, that'll be easy. Like you just take away the cheese, but you take away the cheese and the emulsion completely changes. Like it was one of the trickiest ones for me to nail down. And it changed a lot between when I first handed it off for cross-testing and when we printed the book. The technique kept having to get uh, tinkered with even though the ingredients, I think, pretty much just stayed the same. The concepts stayed the same. But getting it to where it was that, um, like, silky, let's say butter, even though there's no butter sauce that really clings onto the noodles, ended up being really tricky. I was like, oh, I get why the cheese is here. Because it makes it simpler to pull together from a technique point of view. Isn't to say that this recipe is harder from a technique point of view. It's not. And you don't have the great cheese, which is great. But from a development point of view, it was like, I felt like it was a really tricky nut to crack. But when I got it, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I was picturing. It tastes like I met one of my favorite New Jersey diners, but there's pasta instead of toast and hash browns. It has this very comforting American breakfast vibe to me inspired by that classic Italian dish. Wow. So how does the emulsion change when you take the cheese out? I, I need to ask like a food scientist this because I, it was, oh. I mean, <laughs> it just, it, it kept breaking or not setting was like the things that we mm-hmm. kept running into, uh, like where I would expect it to be coming together. I kept running into problems and Eventually, we, the thing that kind of helped make it foolproof was, like, 
it was how you add the bacon fat and the pasta water and like the order that all those things happen and then the sauce ends up cooking on a double boiler so basically you just take the bowl that you're building your sauce in you put it on top of the pot that you just boiled your pasta in and then you just toss mm. and the, like the remaining water in there kind of acts like steam instead of putting the pasta directly and the sauce directly into a hot pan it's a gentler path for the pasta and just as easy as tossing in the skillet but then you don't run into the same, oh, the eggs got too hot too quickly. They can kind of take their time and turn into this soft, creamy sauce. Wow. And you just made double boilers not sound fussy. Anytime I see a recipe that calls for a double boiler, I think, wow, like that's not just a second pot. That's like a whole second contraption. Like you're getting another pot of water boiling. You're, you're maintaining it. You're getting a bowl on top. You're like, and instead you've just taken a pasta pot that, you know, you could make on any night. And many of us do make frequently uh, on any night and just plunk a bowl on top of it and you have a double boiler that makes a sauce that is um, completely different than pasta sauces that you might have thought to make. Yeah, I mean, you're using things that you already have, right? And that recipe, I remember, I was testing it so many times that, um, <laughs> but we were just like, we were eating it like every day, I think for like one week. It was just because I was like, you know, on a deadline, I need to get this nailed down we were just constantly eating bacon egg pasta, but the recipe comes, it comes together so quickly. It's one of those things that like, because I was timing things and writing them down, measuring, I was doing all these things that you wouldn't be doing for the recipe itself. It was one of those things that almost came together too quickly. I was like, oh no, that's ready. Mm -hmm. I need to be thinking about this for a second, <laughs> but it's really nice. It's, I mean, it's, you set yourself up and then you can have dinner so swiftly and you only had to take out a few things that's so appealing <laughs> i can't even tell you what is the main takeaway that you hope that readers and cooks get out of big little recipes the cookbook your ingredients work for you not the other way around your ingredients can do more than you give them credit for depending on what ingredients you have you probably already have breakfast lunch or dinner hiding away somewhere. That's what I want people to take away and generally just feel more empowered by a handful of ingredients, whether it's something that they spotted at the market or something that they already have. That feeling that you can do less and feel just as, if not more, proud of what you made for dinner. Thanks for listening. And my thanks to Emma LaPeruk, Food52's multi-talented food editor, whose cookbook Big Little Recipes is out very soon on November 9th. And you can pre-order it right now at the link in our show notes. Our show is put together by Coral Lee, Amy Schuster, and Emily Hanhan. If you have a genius recipe, especially one with five hardworking ingredients or fewer, I would always love to hear from you at genius at food52.com. 
And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes and the Food 52 Podcast Network, the very best thing that you can do to support us and help other people find the show is to take a moment and leave us a rating or review, or send this episode to someone who loves shorter, smarter grocery lists too. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week.